Uh, before we get started tonight, I want to ask, uh, how many people here have been to all four of the classes to start the year? Anybody? Anybody? A couple? Okay. All right. Awesome. We want to thank you guys so much. Uh, these classes have been a, a blast for John and I to be able to, to teach, to go through some tricky questions that the culture has for Christianity. Uh, and tonight we're going to be continuing doing that. Now, we started off this series by asking, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? Then we went on and asked, okay, well, how, how can there only be one right way, one right religion in a world full of different paths? And then last week we talked about the, the tricky question of, of science and religion. Has science disproved religion or Christianity? Now, these questions are all things that we need to be wrestling through and be prepared for our non-Christian friends and family to ask. But I think additionally we need to be proactive in our witness to the world. So we've talked a lot about, okay, well, what do we do when, when somebody comes up to us and asks us a question? But the reality is that most of our life, most of our witness to this world uh, is much less reactive and much more proactive. So even if people aren't asking these questions that we've been talking about, even if they're not asking those questions to us directly, we need to be preemptively telling a different kind of story with our lives to counteract those narratives. So, for example, let's think about the, the classes we've already gone through. We've talked about evil and suffering. And one of the ways we can preemptively tell a different story is by emphasizing the redemptive qualities of God. Or when it comes to religious pluralism, we can tell a different story by emphasizing the way that the gospel transcends different cultures and different worldviews. The way that salvation is applicable to all tribes and all tongues. And when it comes to faith and science, we can tell a different story by displaying a, a healthy respect for science, but also widening our place in, in the scientific discussion as Christians. Now, I introduce our class like that tonight because we're going to be spending some time tonight thinking about the objection that many people in our culture have today that Christians are hypocrites, that the church, the Christianity has caused violence and oppression throughout history. All the questions we've talked about in this class over the last few weeks have a, a personal element to them, but I think this question in particular has a very personal, experiential element to it. It reeks of personal pain and suffering that people have encountered in the church. So we want to spend time in, in discussion and in, in teaching, thinking about this week, the ways that we can address that personal response and be proactively witnessing a counter-narrative for them. So over the next few minutes, I want to invite you at your tables to, if you haven't already, introduce yourself to the people at your tables, and then spend a few minutes uh, discussing these questions. How has your experience with the church shaped your feelings and posture toward Christianity? If you were raised in the church, uh, what was that experience like? If you came to the church later on in life, what were your encounters with Christians and the church like? And then after that, do you have any friends or family members that are openly hostile towards Christianity? And, and why is that? I wanna, we want to spend some time thinking about that personal experiential element with our faith today. So go ahead, in your tables, introduce yourselves, and let's talk about those for a few minutes. All right. I hope your discussion was fruitful. I hope you've planted some seeds that will, will bear more fruit later this evening as we continue to discuss this question with one another as well. But let's go ahead and, and say, okay, well, let's, let's try to formulate this question, this problem, a little more clearly. I think primarily the question is this. How could I believe, that's a typo, 
in a religion made up of hypocrites? Or how could Christianity be true when Christians do such terrible things? Now, when we think about apologetics, we think about defending our faith, a lot of times we think about you know, intellectual, logical reasons why people reject Christianity. But people reject worldview for all kinds of different reasons. And a large part of those reasons are not strictly academic or strictly logical, but they're, they're emotional, they're experiential. And the actions of the church in particular are ones that can very easily grate on the emotions of a person. So uh, Tim Keller, uh, a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church for many years in New York City, uh, formulates this, this kind of paradox this way. He says, many people who take an intellectual stand against Christianity do so against a background of personal disappointment with Christians and churches. If you have known many wise, loving, kind, and insightful Christians over the years, and if you have seen churches that are devout in belief yet civic-minded and generous, you will find the intellectual case for Christianity much more plausible. If, on the other hand, the preponderance of your experience is with nominal Christians who bear the name but don't practice it, or with self-righteous fanatics, then the arguments for Christianity will have to be extremely strong for you to concede that they have any cogency at all. We are experiential beings. And when we experience something that leaves a bad taste in our mouth, oftentimes our instinctual reaction is to purge our lives of that thing. So, you know, has anybody, anybody here ever gotten sick from food? When was the next time you ate that food? <laughs> I, I, one of the things I think, you know, for kids, I, I, can, I can imagine, you know, the kid who has, you know, 12 pieces of watermelon at that, that picnic when it's 90 degrees out and the parents are, you know, distracted by something, the chance to not look over their kids for a few hours, I suppose, they can go play. And that kid ends up throwing up, of course, it's 90 degrees out and he ate 12 pieces of watermelon and doesn't eat watermelon for the next 15 years. Now, this can happen both with, with food, it can happen with other things in our lives, it can happen with songs. Right? I mean, many of us probably have had positive experiences with things like, like songs, right? Christian worship songs in particular that at a moment in our live, lives where we needed the grace of God and received it, we, we have a song that is associated with that time in our life. And that song instantly brings up uh, emotions that we, that we relish, that we crave, that we desire. Our experience like that is, is in the church as well. What we experience, how we see other Christians acting, or if we experience some kind of evil, some kind of abuse, it can leave a bad taste in our mouths. And that can cause people to either reject the church explicitly or slowly fade away. And it's not just all emotional either. There, there is some, some logic to this. If, if Christianity claims to be a religion in which a God is loving and kind and merciful, then why do his people act in violent, selfish ways? Those two things don't seem to compute. Or, or to put it another way, if Christianity really provides transformation, provides you know, moral fruit, then why do Christians fail so often? Even our Bible says that you shall be known, a tree shall be known by its fruits. So the logical question would be formed something like this. Christianity claims to be the ultimate source of morality and transformation. But Christians are not better people, so to speak. 
And the church has even fostered evil throughout history. Therefore, Christian claims should be ignored or even actively replaced, replaced by some other ideology. You know, personally, this might be, might be framed somewhat differently, right? This would be kind of a logical explanation, but when we actually hear people say these things, it might sound something more like this. I've been hurt by people in the church, but I've gotten support by my non-Christian friends. So how could I belong to a group that is, that is constantly hurting people? Or how could Christians tell other people how to live when they themselves don't live like that? Or thinking about the history, I, I've heard so much about the awful historical deeds of the church, the Crusades and the Inquisition and those kinds of things. I, I just don't want any part in that. Or maybe you've heard somebody quote Gandhi, uh, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They don't look much like your Christ. And in light of these objections, uh, the Christian apologist James Taylor has, has this advice. He says, the first thing a Christian apologist should do when confronted with accusations such as these is to admit that both the institutional church and many individual Christians have done many wicked things throughout history. However, though the church has no excuse for these wrongs, it does have an explanation for them. And so tonight what we're going to do is, is first we're going to distinguish between these two things, the, the individual sin and the institutional evil, and we're going to try and provide an explanation without providing an excuse, without excusing these things. And so part of tonight is going to be wrestling with these things. So let's begin. Our first response is to explain individual sin. And the logical problem of individual sin is one that's primarily founded on a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. You know, I'm, I know a lot of, of non-Christians who are better people than Christians. Now, there's a, few, there's a few faulty assumptions that are happening with a statement like that, right? The first is that there's a shared standard of what better people are. Right? what better people look like. And we've talked about this in this class over the last few weeks, that without some kind of, of theistic foundation, shared morality is a problem. We don't have a leg to stand on. If you want to hear more about that, I would go back to our first session with Pastor John to hear more about that, about why a good God could allow evil. But the second assumption in that statement, that, that I know lots of non-Christians who are better people than Christians, is that it sees Christianity as primarily a, a morality system. It sees Christianity as a system by which people become more moral, nicer people. So if Christians aren't as nice of the people that, that you know outside of the church, then the system seems to be failing. Now, that assumption is not completely false because Christianity does provide transformation, which we're going to talk about. But on the whole, that's a, that's a misunderstanding of what the church is supposed to be, about what the gospel is. So our primary response to this is going to be correcting some of these misunderstandings. And the first way we're going to do that is by emphasizing the notion of common grace. So common grace is this, this doctrine that we have in the church that God bestows his grace. He grants gifts to the world, to Christians and non-Christians alike. And those gifts might look like... Uh, physical, natural gifts, right? The rain falls on the Christian and the non-Christian farmer alike. But it also looks like the gifts and the talents and the characteristics that people naturally have. 
right? Whether that's uh, an inherent skill towards something or an inherent propensity to be a nicer person or a more cruel person. Christianity is not a religion that assumes that all the, all the most good, all the most moral people are in and all the bad people are out. And in fact, we assume that, that all people are gifted with the image of God. And in that image of God, they have specific skills and talents, but also they've all been corrupted by the taint of sin. So as Christians, we expect that, that all people are going to exhibit good glimpses of, of righteousness, of of grace, of kindness, but also that all people are ultimately going to be corrupted by their own sin. So when people assume that Christianity is a morality system, they expect the people inside that system to be good and the people outside that system to be bad, but that's, that's just not the case. So we can't allow that to be faith-shattering. So with that in the background, we want to start thinking about what kind of transformation Christianity really does provide. And, and in, in Christianity, we usually, in theological circles, we use this word sanctification, right? That, that Christians, once they have received the grace of Christ, have put their faith in him alone, in the cross of Christ, that God will sanctify them, will, will provide transformation through the power of the Spirit, but there's two things that we need to address here, and it has to do with what that sanctification looks like. And we're going we're to talk about that as sanctification as progressive and as relative. The first is that sanctification, the progress, the process of becoming more and more like Christ, is a never-ending, ongoing process. We are all unfinished products, and we won't, we won't ever reach that state of moral holiness that we're called to until Jesus returns and glorifies us once and for all. It's progressive. It's ongoing. And so we can expect that both new Christians and genuine, lifelong, steadfast Christians will still fail. On all stages of the Christian journey, there will be failure. But there will also be growth. There will also be transformation. That doesn't mean that we should excuse that sin, that we should excuse that failure. We should be ready and willing to work out justice when justice is needed and accountability when accountability is needed. But the fact that all Christians, including the ones that stand on stage, sin should not shake the understanding of Christianity. In fact, the the sin of Christians is proof of the fundamental claim of the gospel that humanity cannot reach God's moral standards on its own. We are helpless in our battle against sin until we desperately cling to the power of Christ through his blood and through the Holy Spirit. His mercy is new each morning. I I, I heard a pastor once say that I'm so glad that his mercies are new each morning because I used up yesterday's already. Sanctification is progressive. It's not instantaneous. It's not overnight. And that can be, that can be really frustrating. <laughs> Thank you. It can be so frustrating. Why doesn't God just send in the Holy Spirit and make his people instantaneously the perfect image bearers that they are supposed to be? Why doesn't he do that? Why make the process so long and, and arduous? I think uh, John Piper has a, has a good answer to this question. 
Uh, essentially, he says, well, one of the key reasons that God does this is that God sanctifies us slowly because it reminds us of our constant need for dependence upon him. If we were saved, you know, if we heard the good news of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we put our faith in him, and, and, and boom, we were changed, it wouldn't be very long before we started to get prideful. Is anybody else out here um, a, a, a board game person? My, my wife and I are definitely like game people, which comes with all kinds of stereotypes that are all true. But we, we love playing games, unique, unique board games, uh, a complicated board game, simple board games, group board games, individual. We, we love games. Uh, and we love learning new games. So if you have a, a good, unique board game recommendation, please, please let us know. But one of these things that can happen when, when you learn a new game is this unique phenomenon known as beginner's luck. Anybody else ever experience that? Anybody else ever desperately need that beginner's luck? <laughs> See, what can happen is be beginner's luck is, is, is when somebody learns a game for the first time and, and just, like, dominates the very first time, right? Uh, and, and that can be really frustrating for the people who have put in the long, hard hours of trying to play this game over and over and over again, only to lose to somebody who has just learned what this game is. Now, what can happen when, when this, this phenomenon occurs is that it's very easy to become prideful, like, man, I am, I am really good at this game, and that's the same thing that can happen in our Christian life. That pride can happen when we don't remember who the real source of our character is. The attention can easily start becoming ourselves. Look how great these Christian people are. And that can happen for individuals and it can happen for churches. But the gospel is a paradox of human effort and divine sustenance. Because we constantly need to be reminded that while God calls us to a great work, we cannot do it on our own. And just like the second time you play that game, usually a little smackdown happens. So often for us as Christians, the moment we think like, okay, I have that sin beat, is the moment that we're reminded that we are helpless by, with our own limitations and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so Piper sums this up well. He says, God has his reasons for why he saves us in stages, sanctifies us slowly, makes us fill up every day at the pump, lest we forget where the gas comes from. Sanctification is progressive, so we should not expect perfect Christians. And the other half of this idea of sanctification is that it is relative. That is, everybody starts at different points, Right? So that's not just true of, of the church, but it's true of society. So, so Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, uh, which is one of the most helpful resources, I think, for, for Christians in, in conversations with their, with their friends and family, he, he points to some modern sociological findings which indicate pretty clearly that one of the biggest factors in individual behavior, you know, whether somebody will be prone to uh, a criminal activity, will be prone to any other, you know, other moral measurements, one of the biggest factors is outside of your control, and it just happens to be the family that you were born into, the neighborhood you were born into, the amount of income that you were born into. Now, again, this is not 
an excuse for behavior, but it reminds us that, that some of the biggest factors towards morality and behavior are outside of our control. And the reason that Keller points this out is to remind us of the humility that we need to have when we are judging another person's moral behavior. The reality is we have no clue of the background of most of the people who we, we see and judge on a daily basis. Now, that doesn't mean that as a society we can't have consequences for lawbreaking. But when we compare one person's attitude and behavior to another person's, which is usually our own, we're often making wild assumptions that the two people had exactly the same background, exactly the same starting point on the character scale. Now, while sanctification really does happen for Christians who have been gifted the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, it's relative to where that person started. And as Keller reminds us, Christianity and its gospel of grace attracts a certain kind of people. It is often the case, he says, that people whose lives have been harder and who are lower on the character scale are more likely to recognize their need for God and turn to Christianity. So we should expect that many Christians' lives would not compare well to those of the non-religious just as the health of people in the hospital is comparatively worse than people visiting museums. Remember, it was Jesus who said, it is the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. You know, looking at at imperfect Christians and claiming that Christianity does not work is like going to an AA meeting and saying, see, how could this work? This meeting is full of alcoholics. And of course, the people in the AA meeting are not the only alcoholics in the world, but they're the ones who have come to realize they just can't fix the inherent problem on their own. So we should expect Christianity to be full of of broken people with messy pasts, whose sanctification is ever ongoing with ups and downs and everywhere in between. So for anybody, Christian or non-Christian, because I think we need this truth of judging as much as anybody else, To compare different people's goodness is to make massive, prideful assumptions. Christianity, as Keller says, is not a museum for perfect saints. It's a hospital for sick sinners. The gospel doesn't attract good people. It attracts needy people. At the end of the day, the solution to this objection is to clarify what the Christian good news, the gospel, is. The religion of Jesus according to the word of God and and the posture of what gospel-believing Christians should be. So there's this reality in the church, right, of what we call, uh, we might call the the visible church and the invisible church. So the visible church would be the the church that comes to church, right? The the Christians who, who have a fish on their bumper sticker, the people who show up to church on Sundays would check off the Christian box on the survey. Anybody who claims to be a Christian falls in this visible church. But there's a reality that not everybody who claims to to be a Christian is actually saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, again, Jesus is the one who said, many will say on the day that I come, Lord, Lord. The many who call me Lord, Lord, and I will say, you never knew me. So there's this reality that there's an invisible church of people who have been transformed by the blood of Jesus, and there's a reality that there are many people who have fallen into a cultural Christianity. And so we want to we kind of think about these people who claim to be Christians but haven't experienced Jesus through two different lenses, and one is the cultural Christian. Right? This, is, this is the Christian who uh, 
distorts the gospel by seeing the gospel, seeing Christianity primarily as something that can make them happy, make them feel good. They come to church on Sunday because they like the community of the people who are here. They come to church on Sunday because they think it will give them their their public image, some sort of second category. And then you have the the fanatic. Now, this is kind of on the other side of the scale of somebody who distorts the gospel by making it completely legalistic, somebody who sees Christianity as a rule of law of morality and wants to impose that morality on everybody else. Now, the the non-Christian looks at both of these two people, the the Christian Christian, nominal Christian on one side and and the fanatic on the other side. They see both of those people and they say, see, Christianity does not work. Look at how ineffective it is. That nominal Christian, he's not being transformed like you claim he should be. I know he's cheating on his taxes and cheating on his wife. And this fanatic, well, he's the one who's imposing all kinds of of violence. He's imposing his morality on, on the people around him. But, but look at what, what both of these two people, the, the cultural Christian and the fanatic, look at what they've done. They, they haven't been witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've witnessed what happens when you see Christianity as a system of self-improvement. The nominal Christian who sees his religion as valuable because it makes him feel good, he's removed the call to holiness and he's replaced it with the call to happiness. And, and the fanatic thinks that he and everybody else has to earn their moral standing before the Almighty God. And he's replaced the offer of grace and mercy with a list of regulations, which is the exact problem that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. The solution to those two distortions is not less Christianity. It's more. It's more gospel The nominal Christian needs to hear the true transformation of holiness that Jesus calls his people to, saying, if you will follow me, you must be willing to take up your cross. You must be willing to kill all of the old self. But the fanatic needs to hear of the incredible grace that Christ offers, independent of his efforts to be a better person. He needs to understand that holiness is not opposed to grace and mercy. Holiness is motivated by the gifts of grace and mercy. And while there are all of these distortions of Christianity at work in our churches, we can also say that the transformative, self-sacrificial nature of the gospel, it's not completely missing. We do see it. I've seen it here at Peace Church. You go to, tell you what, you go to one marriage retreat at Peace Church and you will see the kind of gospel transformation that is happening when the Spirit moves. And it's not just happening at Peace Church. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book Confronting Christianity, puts it well. She says, There are millions of instances every day of religious people acting immorally, sometimes dramatic, headline grabbing ways. But there's also substantial evidence that religious practice correlates with a range of moral goods. In his 2018 book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, philosopher Christian Miller observes that literally hundreds of studies link religious participation with better moral outcomes. For example, levels of domestic violence in a U.S. sample were almost twice as high for men who did not attend church versus those who attended once a week or more. Religious participation has also been linked to lower rates for 43 other crimes, 
In North America, regular service attenders donate three and a half times the money given by their non-religious counterparts per year and volunteer more than twice as much. Such studies seldom make the news. Christian donates to charity is hardly a headline material. The evidence, as atheist social psychologist Jonathan Haidt observes, is not in favor of the religion hinders morality hypothesis. Even if you excuse secular liberals from charity because they vote for government welfare programs, he notes, it's awfully hard to explain why secular liberals give so, much, so little blood. There are fruits out there if we're willing to see them. And again, this is not to excuse us when we act like jerks. But it is to say that one's individual experience with broken Christians or nominal cultural Christians or fanatic Christians does not cover the whole story. As McLaughlin said, religious participation, particularly that in Christianity, has been linked to moral good, not just the brokenness that tends to scar us. Christianity is a vehicle transformation, not because it attracts better people, but because when the gospel truly happens, healing happens. Sin is confronted, grace is imparted, and little by little, the body of Christ really does lift one another up to both personal holiness and societal redemption. Now, I want to give you all at your tables a chance to discuss these things. And particularly, I want to think about some of the experiences we have had with other Christians. Do you think of any examples of times when you've witnessed individual Christians behaving poorly in public settings or in front of non-Christians? How were they received, and how did it make you, as a Christian or potentially as a non-Christian, feel? And what could be the process of gracefully confronting that Christian about their witness? Or when have you witnessed the power of gospel transformation in your own life, in your own growth groups, in your own churches? What part of Christ's work in sanctifying you and changing you could be a potential part of your testimony to the world? Let's spend a few minutes in that. All right, I hope your discussions, again, I hope they are bearing fruit for you. I hope they are providing uh, seeds uh, for future thought for you. Um, and I hope you're making some connections as well. Together. That's one of the things that we love about these classes that they provide for people who maybe have not been able to, to cross paths before, to be able to have some discussion about what our faith looks like when it is in action. So I love that this is happening here tonight. Now, before we, we get going on to more content, we, we want to give another copy of, of this book away. This is Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she has a, a degree in, in literature from, from uh, Cambridge. Uh, she's done a lot of work in this area of Christian apologetics recently, uh, and we found this book to be a great resource for us. So I want to give this away to somebody. So we have another uh, trivia question for you here tonight. So put on your, your trivia hats. Uh, question is... What religion or ideology caused the most death in the 20th century? Uh, I want something more specific. Oh, you said it. You got it. Communism. Uh, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but uh, most estimates are somewhere between 60 and 100 million deaths because of the communist regimes in Russia and China and Cambodia in the 20th century, which are staggering numbers. But we'll, we'll go into that a little more in depth in a little bit. Now, we've so far, we have provided uh, a little bit of an explanation for, for why individuals 
who profess Christianity are often more morally imperfect people, but that doesn't necessarily address this, 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 this problem of corporate sin in the church, the way that Christianity has been used to commit enormous acts of evil and destruction. So, so once we've, we've kind of clarified with this idea of individual sin, the clarified what the gospel really teaches and what it is as Christians we're trying to, to impose upon the world, to use the world's terminology, once we've clarified that, we, we need to be ready to honestly grapple and wrestle with the ways that the church at large has been complicit in evil throughout its history. So there are some real honest examples of this that are not just unfair accusations that the world invents, but historical failures of the church that we must admit we must honestly admit we must repent of those things, repent of the ways perhaps that we have been complicit in them, and we must lament, grieve over the ways that our Christian witness has been corrupted and the pain and the suffering that the church has been a part of. Some of the prominent examples of such corporate Christian sin include uh, extreme violence and destruction against thousands of, of Muslim and Orthodox Christian families during the Crusades in the 12th and the 13th centuries. Now, there are some very complicated factors of the Crusades that don't often get brought up, but no matter the reasons of why they, the Crusades occurred in those 12th and 13th centuries, thousands of innocent civilians, both Muslim and fellow Christians were killed during those crusades. And that's just inexcusable for us as the church. We can't excuse those things away. Or we think about the violent actions of the Catholic Inquisition and other Christian authorities throughout the Middle Ages, the way that Christians during the Middle Ages combated heresy with, with, with often with torture, with execution, with imprisonment were the inexcusable justifications that American Christian slave owners put forth here in our country, twisting the Bible in order to defend chattel slavery of African Americans. We must confess and weep over some of the cultural destruction that has happened in the church's name as mission work was tied to colonial expansion into Southern Africa, East Asia, and Latin America. We must offer our Sincere apologies and repentance over the ways that the biblical doctrine of complementarianism that we, we love and cherish at Peace Church, the ways that that doctrine has been twisted to patriarchal actions that have allowed for systematic abuse of women in our churches, or the ways that our discomfort with the sin of homosexuality has led to us ostracizing those individuals who have struggled with temptation and confusion regarding their sexuality. Now, let's, let's be clear, not, not every instance when the world calls Christian evil is evil. As we've talked about, true morality is not based on our human preferences, but on the unchanging, unflinching character of God. So there will be times when, when the world's secular morality conflicts with God's never-changing moral standard. And any morality that is not based on that unchanging holy God is, is flawed. And so there will be a corrupted filter, a, a lens through that, that taints the way that that culture views the world. 
making it more difficult to see clearly. So every culture has a blind spot when it comes to morality. And so there will be times when what God calls good, the world calls evil. There will be times when what we call evil, the world calls good. But it's so important for us as Christians to be rooting ourselves in the word of God. And for this reason, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, because our temptation is to let our preferences or our culture's tainted view of morality to define our morality. But the word of God will challenge and convict us if we're willing to hear it with fresh eyes. But friends, not every instance of the world accusing Christians of violence and evil is fake news. The atrocities that I mentioned a few minutes ago are more complicated than some secularists choose to, to admit, but they were atrocities nonetheless. And as Christians, our response has to be one of honest regret and grief and admission, not immediate protest and defensiveness. If we don't, then we will rightfully be seen as hypocritical, as, as unfeeling, and our opportunity for honest relationship with somebody who who has a difficulty grappling with those evils, that opportunity will be lost. But once we've done that, once we've wrestled with these things, we've lamented over these things, we can also offer a counter-narrative. This idea that we can offer a, a counter-story to the one that the world is telling. And one part of that counter-narrative is that the human heart is prone to violence and destruction because of sin. But through Christ, redemption and recreation is found. Yes, the church has committed great sin, but to characterize Christianity as only resulting in evil for society is to ignore hundreds of years of history that says otherwise. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, we need to, to hold a different truth in mind. First, we need to hold this truth that Christianity is not the only religion or philosophy to have committed violent acts. And this, again, is not an excuse for the church's failures, but an explanation as to why any human institution is going to have embarrassing, shameful moments of failure. The, the teachings of Christ are explicitly nonviolent, yet there are shamefully in, shameful incidents in which people have used Christianity to justify horrifying violence. In a similar way, the teachings of Buddha are explicitly nonviolent, yet in just the last few years, there have been more than 10,000 deaths in Myanmar as Buddhist nationals have sought to cleanse their country of Muslim families. Violence has played a key role in other religions' history as well. Of course, we, we think about Islam, both in its initial spread across Africa and the Middle East, as well as the extreme terrorism we, say, we see in modern days. And, and the list could go on, though, in every religion. As McLaughlin notes in, in that book, Confronting Christianity, she says, in an analysis of violent history, no major world religion emerges without blood on its hands. Now, of course, it's, it's understandable that one might hear that and, and the reaction would be, okay, well, well, maybe Christianity specifically isn't the problem. Then. Maybe just religions are corruptive. Maybe religion and violence just go hand in hand. Maybe religion causes people to, to, to have extreme acts of violence, to commit those acts. Maybe we just need to get rid of religion. But when you start to go into the history of humanity, 
you begin to realize that removing religion from the picture doesn't solve the problem. So take communism, for example. We discussed this just a minute ago. This is a completely secular worldview. It was created in some ways as an alternative to religion. When Karl Marx uh, snidely rejected religion as the opiate of the people, he said it was a sedative that hindered people from obtaining their true happiness. But when Marx's philosophies were implemented at large in places like the Soviet Union or China or Cambodia in the 20th century, horror ensued. Mass executions, labor camps, widespread famine among the poor, and desperation in the masses, ethnic cleansings. To put this in perspective, the the U.S. uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum estimates that about 17 million people died as a result of the Nazi Holocaust, not in World War II, but just innocent civilians. 17 million people, roughly 6 million Jewish people and 11 million non-Jewish victims. But the communist regimes of the 20th century are estimated to be responsible from anywhere from 60 to 110 million deaths just in the 20th century. Now that, let's get this straight. This, this is not an argument to say communism causes genocide. That's not what we're saying. The point is to say that removing religion from the picture doesn't necessarily solve the violent, controlling impulses that the human heart has. There's, there's a really interesting Wikipedia page. If you, if you uh, want to look for it, it's called List of Wars and Anthropogenic Disasters by Death Toll. Anthropogenic just means uh, caused by humans, right? A list of wars and anthropogenic disasters by Death Toll. And it lists and categorizes the different ways in which humanity has engaged in violence and murder throughout the course of documented history. And as soon as you start browsing those lists, you begin to realize how vast and varied and depressing our history is. It's not just religion that motivates people to violence. Tim Keller explains this again in in The Reason for God. When the idea of God is gone... A society will transcendentalize something else, some other concept, in order to appear morally and spiritually superior. So the idea is once you remove the the thing that was uniting everybody as as that transcendent worldview, something else will replace it. We saw the results in the case of, of communism in the 20th century. He's saying that people tend to rally around certain ideas and causes, and if religion is not that point, other philosophies will be. So he continues, and he says, we can only conclude that there is some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart that it expresses itself regardless of what the beliefs of a particular society might be, whether socialist or capitalist, religious or irreligious, individualistic or hierarchical. And again, this is not a notion that is contrary to Christianity. This maps uh, perfectly to the Christian doctrine of sin and brokenness in the world. Though we are made in his image, God's image, we, we are able to participate in his creative activity, and yet we are a horrifyingly destructive people. And we see this in our own culture today, too. You know, we might like to believe that we live in, in this civil, nice, technologically advanced, uh, modern society, and yet... Violence is a part of our culture. 
It might not happen in the ways that it did in the killing fields of Stalin or in the concentration camps of Hitler, but destruction happens at so many levels, physical, mental, emotional. We think we live in this safe society, but violence has just changed its form. So physical violence still happens. This is, you might not be able to read all the details on this chart, but this is a a chart of, of mass shootings over the last uh, what is it, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? And, the, and if you look at this, this top grid, you'll see that from 1970, 1966 through 1999, uh, April 1999 was the Columbine shooting. So up until that Columbine shooting, roughly a mass shooting, which in this case is being defined as four or more people killed in a public space. Not a, not a private, uh, necessarily home invasion kind of thing, but a public space. Four or more people killed. So in, in those 30 years, mass shooting roughly happened once every six months. After the Columbine shooting from 1999 to June 2015, June 2015 was the Charleston shooting in which a, a white supremacist entered a historically black church and interrupted a Bible study, actually participated in the Bible study before killing, I think, nine people. So in between those two shootings, roughly there was a mass shooting every 84 days, every two and a half months. And then just within the last five years since that Charleston shooting, there's been a mass shooting event every 47 days, every six weeks. We are still a culture, a violent, destructive culture. And if it's not physical, then it's digital. Our society has become so sharply, polemically divided that the vilifying of somebody's political or ideological enemies runs rampant. Social media becomes a a realm of public shaming, shaming that that happens at a mass scale that was never possible before this communication tool of the internet was advented. A mob mentality of justice takes over. We want to expose a person that doesn't think like us or who doesn't believe like us. You know, we might not leave a man beaten and bloodied in the street, but his plastic photos will be all over the, his private photos will be plastered all over the internet for millions to see. His, his private contact information will be shared with the masses, encouraging thousands, sometimes millions of social media followers to, to pile on and lambasting somebody who we've never met before. And this happens on both sides of the political aisle. Not, not only does the internet allow us to engage mass amounts of people in this cruel behavior, but it, it allows us to engage in these snide, biting comments with people without ever having to look them in the eye. Do we really think that just because the violence we commit, the, the bullying we enable and enact, just because it's digital rather than physical, that we're more moral people than our forefathers? Now, these are behaviors that we would expect out of junior hires, but these are adults who are engaging these things, and yet it is affecting our kids as well. According to a Pew Research study that came out last fall, 59% of teenagers report experiencing cyberbullying or harassment online, and 90% of teenagers believe that it's a problem, a significant problem for kids today as they try to navigate the internet. We're still a violent and destructive people, and, and this kind of digital Violence results in personal self-violence. There's been a rise in the suicide rate among U.S. citizens, 33% in the last 20 years, the highest rate since World War II, and a 50 to 60% increase in suicide and depression among teenagers and young adults. It's especially impacting our kids. 
the next generations. We're a violent, destructive people. But fortunately, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which proclaims that we are broken and violent and destructive, also provides a way that we might be made whole as Christ took on that violence and destruction on our behalf and rose to new life so that we might be able to enact that new life ourselves. And it also allows us to see glimpses of that new life, of the kingdom of God, while we're here on earth. So the second part of this counter-narrative that we have to provide is the counter-narrative of the redemption that Christianity has been able to provide corporately in the world throughout history. Christianity has been used to destroy by some, but it has also been used to provide great, great good for society. Christian apologist James Taylor summarizes a, a list of areas in which Christianity has, has not just been made, not just made contributions, but provided instrumental, even irreplaceable contributions in providing redemption and restoration. So we have areas like science, and we talked about this this week in the way that Christianity was, was, was the, the root of the, the modern scientific movement. Christianity provided the intellectual framework for the, modern, the fathers of modern science. We talk about healthcare, the origin of, of the modern hospital, which, which was in medieval monasteries, or Florence Nightingale, who was a devout Christian, and her reforms changed the nursing profession forever, or the Red Cross, which was enacted by an evangelical Christian. And we could talk about human rights and, and freedom, which, again, rooted in the inherent value as image bearers that Christianity has. And while Christians did, sadly, horrifyingly, use Christianity to defend the institution of slavery in this country, Christianity was also at the forefront of defeating that slavery. So uh, agnostic sociologist Rodney Stark uh, says this, Although it has been fashionable to deny it, anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the the decline of Rome and were accompanied by the eventual disappearance of slavery in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. When Europeans subsequently instituted slavery in the New World, they did so over strenuous papal opposition, a fact that was conveniently lost from history until recently. And the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by Christian activists. These activists included people like William Wilberforce in Great Britain, John Woolman in America, and of course, later on, when we, we started looking at the, at the at civil rights movement, we look at Martin Luther King Jr., whose, whose battle against that racism and slavery was, was profoundly based upon his rock in Jesus Christ. If we as Christians, if we don't learn the stories of these great historical and contemporary Christians who are fighting the fight to bring God's kingdom to earth, if we don't learn those stories, then we're not going to be able to provide these kinds of counter-narratives. So just one practical application to this, I just want to encourage you, read biographies. Find good biographies, uh, Christian biographies of Christians throughout history who have provided change to this world because of their devout faith in Christ. But of course, our, our witness, and we're just going to end with this, our witness cannot be limited to our knowledge of other Christians. It has to be rooted in our personal witness in relationship. 
And this is, we're, we're going to do this. This is a personal call. It's a renewed call to Christian witness. And there's kind of two arenas in which we want to think about doing this. We want to think about uh, our Christian witness, exalting Christ both professionally in the way that we do our work as well as personally and the way that we go about in relationship. See, no matter what logical arguments we have, people aren't going to listen to our stories about the beauty of Christianity if they see in us backstabbing, unreliable friends. And they're not going to believe our claims about what true Christianity is if we have proven to be untruthful. If we fail to love them, if we fail to love their kids, how will they believe our stories about a God who loves them? We are the witness to that God. So let's think about this professionally and personally. We, friends, we are the body of Christ. And, and it's true that God has provided a salvation for us that will one day transcend this broken world when Christ returns and makes his new world, a new creation, a redeemed creation, and a redeemed people. And yet, as the body of Christ right now, he is using us to bring redemption to this world, to give a glimpse of that new creation that he will one day redeem. And so people like those Christian scientists and, and nurses and abolitionists, those people who used their work, their, their efforts to better the world they lived in, they were an incredible witness to the gospel in the process. So it's worth spending some time asking the question, how does the gospel narrative motivate me to excellence and creativity in my workplace? How does the gospel motivate me to excellence and creativity in my workplace? We, we are not people who are, are good at our jobs and just happen to be Christians. We should be people who are so called to the mission of Jesus Christ that we are radically motivated to bring about transformation and redemption through our work as well as through our witness of the gospel. So I'll give a couple uh, quick examples. Um, my wife, just an example of how we can think about this. My wife uh, is a physical therapist. Right? And so we've, we've talked about, okay, well, what, is, what is a physical therapist? How can a physical therapist give uh, a glimpse of God's new kingdom? Well, there's, there's a couple of different ways, right? On one hand, she gets to, to help provide healing to people. And our God is a God of healing. And so that's, that's I mean, one, one easy way is that for her, her being good at her job is giving a glimpse of, of the healing of God in action. But also, she's radically passionate about wanting to help people stay in their homes. So my wife works in an assisted living facility, uh, a place where people come for rehab. And a lot of these people are, are trying to, as long as possible, especially some of these elderly patients, they, they want to be able to stay in their own homes, but their body is starting to not be able to let them. And so some of the work that she's able to do is provide rehab so that these people can stay in their homes, stay with their family and friends as long as possible. And that passion can't be disconnected from her faith. Right? Because it's, it's her worldview that sees each and every person as made in the image of God, that sees family as, as a key uh, a function of what, what God does in the world that allows her to go forward with this passion. She wants to work hard and she wants to work well in order to help people feel valued and loved and healed. So another example one of my buddies works in a, a, as an engineer in a plant here in Grand Rapids where, where they, they make parts for airplanes, right? 
And so one of the ways that he has come to, to think about his role in, in bringing about a glimpse of the kingdom of God is that some of the parts that they make for these, these planes, these planes are part of an international economy, right? And so he might have a tiny role in this in, in helping to engineer some small, what might seem to be insignificant parts of these planes. But in doing his job well, in being creative about moving forward and providing new and more effective ways of doing this, he is helping to move the international economy forward, which allows for people in remote places of the world who might not have an opportunity to participate in that international economy, that opportunity to flourish as a people. He allows those people to be able to play a part. He allows this world to look more and more like the kingdom of God in which people of all tribes and all tongues are participating in the kingdom. So I just want to invite you to think about your own work and how the gospel transforms the way that you see it. But of course, our witness is also intensely personal. And it doesn't have to do just with what we say in our relationships, but it has to do with what we do in those relationships. Because Jesus did not just come to earth to preach and to teach a a newfound teaching, but he also acted the gospel. If he did not die and and raise from the dead, if he didn't have those actions, then his teachings would have been lost to history. He would have just been one of many different popular public teachers in the ancient world. But instead, his actions launched a revolution that has lasted 2,000 years. So friends, all these arguments that we've been articulating over the last few weeks, they mean nothing if they are not accompanied by action. You want people to stop calling Christians a bunch of hypocrites? Go befriend one of those people and love on them the way that Christ loved you. And the next time that topic comes up, you have a leg to stand on as you ask, why do you think that? Do you, is that how you see me? Why don't don't you come with me to church this week and actually see what it is that we believe? Friends, I am with you in failing to do this well. It is hard. I see acquaintances on social media railing about Christianity, and and I just get mad because it feels unfair. Like, I'm not one of those hypocrites. They have a caricature of me, of what I believe. It's not fair. But, friends, it is fair. We are hypocrites. We are liars and we are selfish and we are broken and we are prone to all kinds of failure, which is why our witness to them cannot be based on us trying to impress them with our moral goodness. It has to be based on us showing them Jesus. Nobody on this earth has ever been transformed from death to life by meeting a really nice person. But meeting with the living God in the form of Jesus Christ, that is where life is found. Paul doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of Christians, for they can save people. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You being the hands and feet of Christ, treating all with charity and love, obeying the commands of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, even when it's difficult, even when it's countercultural, and yet exuding grace and mercy to every person in your midst, that's what showing people Jesus looks like. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to meet tonight and to to bask in your word, Lord. To think about the ways that you have provided transformation to us. 
And we just ask, Lord, that you would provide that transformation for the friends and family that are in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would change our hearts so that we would stop seeing our enemies in, in our culture as enemies. But we might love them the way that you loved us who were your enemy, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask all of this through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we want to invite you back next week as we start looking at how God saves rebels. We'll see you then.